morning, church. I want you to open up your Bibles, please. Romans chapter 8. We'll continue our study from the 13th verse of chapter 8. We are on, we're on the, the fun subject. If you've been here the last couple of weeks, we're on the fun subject of killing the sin within. Killing the sin within. It's a pretty deep subject. Just pray as you heard me pray. But I, I pray that I can share what I need to share out of the love and grace of God. No condemnation whatsoever, just wanting to unleash the truth. Let me read Romans chapter 8. I'm going to read verses 12 and 13. Just verse 12, a little set up for verse 13. But we're going to look again into one statement in verse 13 that we've been looking at for the last few weeks. Paul wrote to the church at Rome, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Here's the statement. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Last week, as we looked into that statement, that command, that admonishment of Paul to put to the believer, to the Christian at Rome, to put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. What does that mean? To put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. By the Spirit. We've been looking at that for a few weeks. And the question that I began in the middle of the message last week that we didn't finish, I'm going to pick this up again, is this question What is absolutely necessary if there's going to be the killing of sin within me? As a believer, what is absolutely necessary if there's going to be the killing of sin within you as a believer? See, the premise that we started with was that even though we're saved, justified uh, in Christ, righteous in the sight of God, we live in this world and we have this mortal body that has not yet been redeemed. That's still connected to who we are. And so we struggle here with sin that remains. We're not in the position that we were in, hopeless, helpless, in bondage, but we still have the tendencies, the bent, the flesh that desires to sin. And it needs to be killed. Paul said that. It needs to be put to death. And the verb there is in, is in the present tense and it's in the ongoing tense means it needs to be happening all the time. Believers need to be engaged in the battle to kill sin all the time. And so the question last week that we were looking at was what is absolutely necessary for that to happen? And here's the first answer that we gave. That in order for the believer to be killing the sin within, it can only be done by the Spirit. Paul said it right there can only be done by the Spirit of God. So we talked pretty extensively about that. But with this qualification, 
The killing of sin in the believer by the Spirit, though it's done by the Spirit, it's not done outside of and separate from anything that the believer does. Because the admonishment here, the command here, is that we are to do something, isn't it? We are actually told to put to death the deeds of the body. So this kind of seeming dichotomy here is that it is only the Spirit of God that can put to death the deeds of the body. And the other side of that is that the Spirit of God will not put to death the deeds of the body without the believer's cooperation, obedience. So it's the Spirit that does it, but He chooses to do it through our response to what He's doing. Us cooperating. So He's the killer of sin, and it is through our obedience that He does that. So first point, what is absolutely necessary for the killing of sin, it has to be done by the believer. The believer cannot kill sin except by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will not kill sin except by the believer's obedience. So now we come to point number two. What is absolutely necessary for the killing of sin within the believer. Let me give you the point and then I'll spend some time trying to illustrate it. That what's absolutely necessary is that the believer has to come to the place, come to the desire and the deep conviction and the commitment that they want to kill sin, all sin, all the time. That the believer needs to come to the place where there is a commitment to universal obedience. Now, I'm going to give you an illustration that will help explain that. Let's say that there is a man, a man that is a believer and that loves the Lord. But this man begins to struggle with an ongoing sin in his life. And the struggle intensifies. And the sin becomes a besetting sin. It becomes a major burden. It begins to affect his life in a significant way. It calls into question his security. It steals his peace that he has before God. His sense of that peace. His coming to God is reluctant because he's aware of that sin. It keeps him up at night. It actually begins to affect not only his emotions, but his physical body as well, as the weight and the guilt of that sin crushes down upon him. And finally, the load gets too much to bear where he comes to the point where enough is enough and he throws himself before God and he cries out for God to take away this besetting sin and he continues to cry out 
He remains at that place of longing for God's help. And he does everything that he can to resist that sin in its attempts to rise up again and punish him more. So question, just for you to ponder, rhetorical question. Will the Holy Spirit put to death that sin, kill that sin in that scenario? Now, hold that thought. Now, I want to look at the man from a little different angle. Same man, same situation. But what we see from this angle is that what this man is, is he's a man that has grown complacent. He has stopped pursuing God like he used to pursue God. His prayers have basically become silent. His seeking out the truth of God's word has basically become almost non-existent. And he has other things in his life, not things that are troubling him, but things that, since he is not walking close and intimate with God, he is doing that are sin. But yet this one sin continues to plague him and pain him. And he continues to cry out to God for the deliverance of that sin. Question, what is his motive? What is his motive for longing in that scenario for longing God to take that besetting sin away? Who's he thinking about? He's thinking about himself. He is thinking about the pain the sin is causing him, the inner turmoil, the uneasiness, the decline of his health, the loss of his peace. This man's motives are actually self-centered motives. But what does God think? What does God think is God honored by him crying out for the deliverance from that one sin? I wondered if you just had a sheet of paper, do this mentally. If you were to just quickly jot down, just when I ask the question, the first three words that come to your mind, three sins that come to your mind, what are the greatest sins if you just, one, two, three. Now listen, Proverbs chapter 6, 16 and 19 There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, one who sows discord among brothers. I think it is feasible that the man in question could be doing things right here that are on this list that are not troubling him like the one besetting sin. 
tops the list here for God? Haughty eyes. Pride. What is at the bottom base level? What is at the root of a life that has gone, a Christian life that has gone prayerless? That has become complacent and is not seeking the ministering of the word of God into the life anymore. I submit to you that it's pride. It's a life that believes they can live it on their own. It's a life that is confident in their ability to get through life and do what they need to do outside of the grace and the will, the plan, the power of God. I'd say that that could top the list. You see, will God give relief to the man over the besetting sin, the sin that is troubling him, so that he can be free to pursue the other sins that trouble God? Second Corinthians seven one. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. To cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. The spirit of God that lives in the believer hates every sin. They are all a defilement. He wants them all cleansed. But if we are not careful, we can get into a posture that is against the sin that is most against us, at least in the way that we feel its ramifications. And be pretty easy on the sins that don't seem to be bothering us. Do you see the point I'm making here? That in order for us to be killing sin, that what absolutely has to happen, answer to the question, is that we have to make a sincere, diligent commitment to be against sin universally. The principle of sin, not just the sin that is the one that is plaguing us and causing us the problems. In fact, I believe, I believe that at times God allows besetting sins to come into our life. I don't mean that he causes them. He allows them to come into our life as a form of chastisement so that he can wake us up and get our attention related to a, a course that our life is taking in general, a complacency and apathy, a loss of fervor for him. But because we're not recognizing those things, he allows the besetting sin to come in to grab us by the shoulders and shake us and wake us up so that we give him our attention and 
Turn our eyes upon the reality of what's happening so that the Spirit of God, whom we have kind of gotten distant from and have not been tuned into, can say to us, Brad, you're you're moving in the wrong direction. Where's the heat of your first love? Where's the passion that you used to have for me and my word? You see, I'm, I'm not sure that God will remove sin that besets us so that we can pursue the sin and continue down the same path of sin, other sins that are against him. What is absolutely necessary for us to be in an ongoing way killing the sin within us as believers. What is absolutely necessary is that we would come to grips with the reality of sin in general. And we would make a concerted effort and decision that I am not just going to be against the sin that I, that's right there in front of me and the one that causes me the most frustration or pain. I'm going to be against sin in general. I'm going to be against sin in totality. I'm going to be against it in a universal way. That's when you're cooperating with the Spirit because the Holy Spirit is against all unholy sin. And He's not just pointing a finger at one and turning his back on the others. There's a heart problem in the life that is just focused on the one, a selfish heart problem that's just focused on one sin that besets and turns away from the others that don't. So, what is absolutely necessary for the believer to be killing the sin within? The first answer was it has to be done by the Spirit. Secondly, what is absolutely necessary for the believer to be killing the sin within? The second answer is that the believer has to make a sincere commitment to being against all sin all the time. And then thirdly, what is absolutely necessary for the believer to be killing the sin within by the Spirit. And this is going to flow right out of the second. I'll show you that. Killing sin within requires that we get a biblical view of sin. That we come to see it for what it is. That we come to see it for its evil and its blackness and we hate it for what it is. You see, we're not going to... We're not going to be 
passionately against all sin all the time if we only see some of the sin some of the time as they truly are. We have to see sin for what it is if we're going to hate sin for what it is. We have to see sin against the, against the backdrop or under the light of the holiness of God. That's key. If we're going to see sin as it is so that we learn to hate sin as it is, we have to see sin and how it is against the holiness of God. All sin. But you know, that is, that's a challenge in itself, isn't it? It is for me. You see, we fight, we have to fight a battle. We have to fight a battle even to come to the place of beginning to see sin as it really is so that then we take the next step and begin to battle against all the sin in our life. Until we see it correctly, we're not going to be against it aggressively. So how are we going to do that? How are we still connected to this mortal body of sin? Even though we are saved, if you're a follower of Christ, you've committed your life to Christ, you're saved, you're justified, you're in Christ, you're there forever, you're on your way to heaven, but you still are in this mortal body that is not yet redeemed. We'll be redeemed one day when Jesus returns, but until then not redeemed. Sin still remains in the mortal body. And so there's this struggle, this battle going on. So how can we then, from this position, still imperfect, begin to see sin as it truly is, so that we hate it as we should, so that we are against all of it as we should be? You see, what we're battling there, even to see it correctly, we're battling sin's deception. I mean, you know that, right? Sin is the deceiver. The author of sin, the tempter, comes to deceive. Started that way in the garden with the very first temptation. It's a process of deception. It always comes with that package. Sin always comes with the package of deception. Here is a common deception. I don't know that I could prove this, but I'm convinced it's connected to every single sin. It's, it's Satan's one card that he keeps wearing out over and over again. Sin always seeks to deceive by dismissing, by downgrading the severity of itself. It always does that. It always says that's not as bad. 
Don't feel too guilty. Don't worry about that. It's dismissive and downgrading to itself. That's a part of the deception of sin. So our ability, because we are still plagued with remaining sin, our our ability to see sin clearly as it is, is impeded right there by the very inherent nature of every sin that wants to deceive and tell us, oh, Brad, that really wasn't so bad. And what it does in that deception is that it has us look around and says, oh, my goodness, look around. <laughs> Just look around. You're, you're way better than those other 10 people over there. You know, the grading on a curve. You like the professors that graded on a curve at school? You see, the reality is we should look at sin related to the holiness of God not the unholiness of other men. It is only under the light of the holiness of God that we're going to see sin as it truly is and learn to hate it for its evil and its blackness so that we rise up against it in all forms, those that hurt us and punish us and those that are even fun. So we've got to fight a battle even to get to the place where we can see it clearly. John chapter 16, 14. How are we going to grow in this clarity seeing sin as the Bible portrays it? Seeing sin from really a perfect heavenly viewpoint instead of a tainted earthly viewpoint. How are we going to have that process take place in our lives? John 16, 14, Jesus said this to his followers about the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God that lives in every believer from the moment of salvation forward. Jesus said, He, the Spirit, will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Jesus said, uh, when I leave, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. And here's what he's going to do. He's going to take from what is mine and he's going to declare it to you. He's going to give it to you. He's going to help make it yours. So let's apply that to this question of how do we view sin? How did Jesus view sin? Just think about how Jesus must have viewed sin. Here is the one that put them all on himself and carried them to a hill outside of Jerusalem. All of the sins of history, past, present, future, and nailed them to the cross through his own flesh. And hanging there on the cross, Absorb the wrath of the Father, the holy, just Father, against all sin, the Son, the perfect, holy Son, willingly received the punishment of the perfect, holy Father for 
sin, every sin. I promise you he hates sin. Every sin. Infinitely. So what we need is we need the Spirit of God to do what Jesus says that He'll do in John 16, 14. We need the Spirit of God to take from Jesus and give to us, declare into our spirits, into our minds, what's in Jesus' mind about sin. In other words, what we need is to put on the mind of Christ about sin. And the Spirit of God is at work If you're a follower of Christ, I promise you right now, the Spirit of God is working in your life to take from what is Christ's and make it yours. To take the mind of Christ and make it yours. That's the work he's performing right now. He's trying to do that as I'm preaching right now. As the Word of God, not my Word, as the Word of God is declared, the Spirit of God is trying to take the Word of God to give you the mindset of the Son of God for the glory of God. This word is a light unto my feet and a lamp unto my path and an illumination of my sin. And we could just add a lot of statements there. So if the desperate need is for me in this battle, this killing of sin, this ongoing perpetual battle that I am as a believer and you as a believer are to be engaged in, if The necessity is for us to be seeing sin for what it truly is so that we're against all sin, not just against the one or two that really trouble us. And if the Holy Spirit helps us put on the mind of Christ so that we can see sin clearly by taking the truth of God's word and transforming our minds with it to make it like the mind of Christ, then what do we need to be in to be killing sin? We need to be in this right here. And this needs to be in us. You see, Jesus Christ... Jesus said, John 14, I am the way and the, say that again, I am the way and the, way and the truth and the life. The truth. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the living word, Scripture calls him. This is the written word. Jesus is the living word. Jesus is the truth of God in the flesh. He is the incarnate Word. In fact, this written Word is ultimately all about Jesus, the living Word. That includes Old Testament and New. Jesus to the Emmaus Road travelers, after He had resurrected, walked beside them on the road. They didn't recognize Him. He kept them from recognizing Him. And they were down hardened and discouraged. And he says, why are you downcast? And they said, well, haven't you heard? Haven't you heard what has happened in Jerusalem? 
that everybody's talking about. There was a man and we had put all of our hopes in him. But they killed him. They hung him on a tree. And more than that, it's been three days. And he made some bodacious claims about what would happen in three days. And Jesus said, Oh, how slow of heart to believe. And then it says, He opened up the Word of God. This would have been the Old Testament. The New Testament wasn't written yet. He opened up the Word of God, the the Old Testament. And he showed them what was written about him in all of the law and the prophets. That's a statement that spans the Old Testament. You see, this written word is about the living word. And what we so desperately need to have the mind of Christ so that we see sin for what it is. We have to cooperate with the Spirit because sin can only be killed by the Spirit. So we have to cooperate with the work of the Spirit who is trying to take the written word that is all about the living word so that he can take from what is Christ and make them ours, putting on the mind of Christ in us so that we can live a life then that is a life of holiness that not only kills the sin within, but acts out the holiness of Christ's character so that the Father is glorified. That's the process. I want to just reason with you for a minute to try to help solidify the concept or the reality of what sin is in the life of the believer. Now, I know that I know that some are not happy we're on the subject. I submit to you again I believe the Lord led me to preach through Romans, and so we are taking it every phrase from cover to cover. I'm not smart enough to say, here's the ones I can skip. I'm just, I'm just not willing to do that. So I'm trying to give as best I can a majority or the full counsel of God on each concept that we come to. That's why we've been here three years in eight chapters. But I want to reason with you from the truth about the gospel, the truth about the good news of Jesus Christ based upon a comparison, a question. Which is worse, when an unbeliever sins or when a believer sins? Which is worse, when an unbeliever sins? Let's say it's the same sin. Which is worse, when an unbeliever sins, a non-Christian, or a Christian? I'm going to submit to you this morning that it's far worse when the Christian sins. 
far worse. And I think I can back that up for you biblically. In Romans chapter 6, matter of fact, I would say that it's an accurate statement to say that all of Romans chapter 6 is crafted to drive this point home. In Romans chapter 6, after Paul had set forth his doctrine, this incredible doctrine of the righteousness of God being given to anyone who put their faith in Christ, that free gift of grace through faith in Christ alone, after he had established that doctrine in his teaching for the first five chapters of Romans, he comes to chapter 6. And what he does in chapter 6 is that he opens up with a question. Listen to his question. Romans 6, 1. What shall we say then? What shall we say then based upon this unbelievable grace of God that's given freely only through faith in Christ? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Then he unpacks that statement down to the middle of chapter 6. Then he asks the same thing, almost virtually the same thing again in verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? Same answer. By no means. Paul asks basically the same question and he gives precisely the same answer twice and his answer is absolutely not. He gives an emphatic, strong statement in the Greek that means absolutely not. Don't even think it. It is unthinkable that we should even pursue that kind of a lifestyle. Having received the grace of God That's his emphasis, right? How can we, he's talking to people who have accepted Christ's forgiveness. How can we, who have received that, say, well, let's go on and continue sinning now because we're forgiven. How could we do that? You see the emphasis there? How shocking. I mean, it's bad enough when an unbeliever does it. But how can we, recipients of the grace of God, live in such a way. Now, in light of that comparison, let me just make some statements to kind of back that up. Comparative statements. When an unbeliever sins, they are resisting the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is working on the unbelieving world, trying to draw them to Christ. In love, trying to draw them to Christ. When an unbeliever sins, they're resisting the work of the Holy Spirit. When a believer sins, they're grieving the Holy Spirit. See the difference there? They're grieving the Holy Spirit. They're doing something directly against the Holy Spirit who lives in them. They are bringing sin into the house in which the Holy Spirit is the resident. And that grieves him.
When an unbeliever sins, they sin from a, from a place of ignorance. When a believer sins, they sin from a place of revelation. They sin from a place of illumination. The unbeliever, Scripture says, is dead in sin, blind, deaf, unable to feel and sense the, rea- the spiritual reality. But a believer, a believer who has had the light of Christ shine upon them, who has been awakened by the Spirit of God to see the reality of their need, and who has put their faith in Christ, now that they can see spiritually that unbeliever sins, not against in a place of ignorance, but in a place of revelation. That's worse. When an unbeliever sins, they sin from a place of impotence. No power, no hope to defeat sin in their life. Bondage to sin, slavery to sin, captive to sin, under the dominion of sin, under the reign of sin. All those descriptions that Scripture gives. So that when an unbeliever sins, they sin from a place of impotence. When a believer sins, they sin from a place of power. They're no longer in bondage to sin. The shackles have been taken off by the power of Christ and his atoning death for sin. They're no longer even in the dominion of sin anymore. They, says Scripture, Paul said, they died with Christ to sin and his crucifixion. They rose with Christ to a new resurrection. They are now existing in the heavenly realms in a spiritual reality. And in that place of the manifold grace of God, all of the things of Christ are at their disposal. That's a place of power. A place of actually the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. And so when a believer sins, they're sinning in the place of ultimate power. From that position, that's worse. When an unbeliever sins, they're sinning against the law of God. When a believer sins, they're sinning against the love of God. That's worse. When an unbeliever sins or an unbeliever's sin is the rebellion of an enemy, it's expected. It's not right, but it's the rebellion of an enemy. Before we were saved, Scripture says we're at enmity with God. We're enemies. We can't submit to God's law. It's impossible for us. Our whole nature, everything about us is against God having the throne of our lives. We want the throne of our lives. So when an unbeliever sins, it is the rebellion of an enemy. When a believer sins, it's the betrayal of a friend. It's the betrayal of a friend. Of the greatest friend. Of the chief friend. Of the friend of all grace and all mercy the friend of all love. The friend that willingly, while you were still a sinner, 
made the decision to go and embrace your sin and carry it to the cross and nail it there. And when the believer sins, that believer at salvation becomes a brother of Christ or a sister of Christ, a joint heir with Christ. And Jesus said to his disciples, I no longer call you strangers, but now I call you friends. We are actually the friends of the very son of the living God so that when we sin, we sin against and betray a friend. Finally, when an unbeliever sins, they suppress the truth. An unbeliever's sin suppresses the truth. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Men, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. When a believer sins, They pour contempt upon the one who is the truth. What a radical difference. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, selected statements there. Those who have been enlightened and tasted the heavenly gift and shared in the Holy Spirit and tasted the goodness of the Word of God and then have fallen... And then have fallen away, are crucifying once again the Son of God and holding Him up to contempt. You see, let me put these all together now. What we so desperately need in order to be continually at the war of killing the sin within. What is absolutely necessary for that to happen if you're a believer in your life, in my life as a believer, what must happen is that I must begin to have the mind of Christ related to sin so that I see it as it truly is, as an affront to the holiness of God, not just as an attack on my comfort, but as an affront to the holiness of God so that what that does then is it brings me to the place where I say, man, I'm going to be against all sin, not just a few that punish me. I'm going to be against all sin in general all the time. I'm going to make a concerted, diligent effort to do that and that when you do that, then the Spirit of God works in that submitted, obedient life to be putting to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. That's the process. Those three things work in direct cooperation with each other. They each need each other. They each work off each other. The Spirit is the only one that can get it done, number one, and the Spirit gets it done in those who have made a concerted effort to be against all sin, number two, and number three, Only those who have seen sin for what it is really are against all sin. So those three things work in cooperation with each other. So that we can follow the admonishment of Paul in Romans 8.13 to put to death 
the deeds of the body by the Spirit. To keep on putting to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. Would you please stand?